You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Amos chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And if you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, which is probably nearby, you can find that in, of course, the Old Testament on page 650, 650. If you're new to our church or just joining us online, we are beginning a new sermon series that actually began last week through this minor prophet book of the Old Testament called Amos. And we are beginning to work verse by verse through this book and are finding, after last week, just a brief introduction, just how heavy and sobering and serious some of the Bible is. And we're reminded even from just this weekend when the men of our church did a lot of heavy things. We had some heavy time together, some heavy eating. We had some heavy fellowship and discipleship, and we certainly did a lot of heavy work. But just like everything that's heavy under God's control is good for us, this is good for us as well. But we need to prepare our hearts for it, don't we? And that's what we have been seeking to do in the last week. So we come now to Amos chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And we have an opportunity here with God's permission through his word to even just begin to glimpse what is God's burning judgment. Something that we don't tend to think about very often if we're given a choice, perhaps we'd rather put that aside and think about happier things. But again, this heavy topic is one that is good for us. So we pray that God would use it in our hearts. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to make what's probably a surprising statement, but hopefully it will make sense in just a couple of moments. Here's the statement. The statement is that God does not fulfill prophecy of prophets. Now that sounds surprising because that's not typically the way we think of of how prophecy works, but in fact, it is. God does not fulfill the prophecy of prophets in the sense It is not as though prophets go out into the world and declare certain things, and then God is obligated to do them. That actually is backward, isn't it? Rather, the question is, which comes first, the ordination of things or the prophecy of things? Is it God's decision to do a thing, or is it the prophecy about what will come in the future? Which of those comes first? And of course, we know because we care very much about this God of the universe and what he's declared to us in his word, that actually it is the ordination of things that happens first. He is not subservient to prophecy in the sense that a prophecy goes out and then he feels obligated to fulfill it. But rather, he decides what he is going to do. He ordains the matter or the event And then the prophets are responsible to tell it. Now, that may not seem like a big difference to you, but it feels like a big difference to me because that truth changes the way we understand all of history. 
it changes the way that we understand much of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. And I think it changes a lot about the way that I view my life. Because I'm prone, like you probably are, to see my life as a series of things, uh, uh, perhaps a series of uncertainties, because I feel uncertain about the future, and I'm looking forward to things, and I'd like certain things to happen, and I'm praying for certain things to happen, and therefore I'm, I'm expecting that God is going to respond to me. But then that kind of leaves me in a lurch, doesn't it? It leaves me kind of waffling in the middle of what's going to happen, the uncertainty about the future and who's in control. But this truth here about God's control gives us all the comfort. And it is something that we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand these difficult, challenging books of the Bible, like Amos. What we want to see this morning as we consider God's burning judgment is not just his, his wrath at work, and not just the declaration of his wrath, but the way that this book of the Old Testament declares his absolute majesty. Even the absolute majesty in his burning judgment. As we see again and again and again, just who is in control. Well, as we look at this text this morning, we're going to see three big truths about God's judgment. And this is going to continue for a number of weeks because very much of the book of Amos is, is a prophecy of these kinds of events happening, these kinds of acts of God in the world in relation to the nations of the world. In particular, the nation of Israel is chosen people and what he has planned to do. And so as we begin here, we want to prepare our hearts. We want to sober our hearts. We want to humble our hearts so that we can receive from God's word the truth that we need that will comfort us, that will give us courage in this life, will strengthen us. So I'd like to pray briefly once more and ask God to help us this morning. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are supreme. You are all. You are exalted. We know that you answer to no one. You take counsel from no one. You owe nothing to anyone, and so we come before you as the God who's in control. And as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would work by your grace, by your Holy Spirit in our hearts, a, a real seriousness about you, a real seriousness about sin, a real seriousness about our world, about your justice, about your expectations, and of course, a big seriousness about your gospel and the good news that has come to us through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your Son for us. And so as we read these words and we consider what you have said to us in the book of Amos, we pray that you would shine the light of your truth into our hearts yet again, illumine our minds so that we can understand, so we can grow close to you, so that we can be more useful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin this morning as we look at this text in Amos chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, with a serious truth. They're, they're all going to be quite serious today. And this is the first truth that we see, even as we look at just verse 2. It is that the roar of God makes mourning. Now, I'm not talking about the morning when the sun comes up, and we sit out and drink our coffee on the porch, and we watch it come over the trees, and we, we see it, and we, we rejoice in it. But I'm talking about the roar of God makes mourning. It makes weeping. It makes crying. It makes grieving. Again, you're hearing over and over again some things that we 
are not accustomed to. They are things that don't, they don't sit well with us. And certainly that is for good reason. Because the reason that God's roar makes mourning is because things have gone very badly in our world. Still all a part of his sovereign plan, but yet even as you look at the world, surely you don't watch the news, you don't read the paper if we do that, or look at your feed on Twitter, and you don't come away thinking everything is going well, everything is right. The world is loving the God who made her. You don't think that. You know the truth. You feel the pressure. You feel the heat. You know that even in your own life. And so we find here in verse 2 this incredible truth, striking, arresting, that the roar of God makes mourning. I want you to notice first in verse 2 the very specific wording of Amos as revealed to him by God in these visions that he envisioned, of whose voice it is that roars. There are for us as God's creatures ordinary ways to talk about God, ordinary everyday ways to talk about God, and there are extraordinary ways for us to talk about God. And these, I believe, have been given to us by God to instill in us an appreciation for his excellencies, for his majesty, for his exaltedness. And we see that very clearly in the Bible when God refers to himself as Lord. But it's this Lord here that's in all caps, probably in your copy of God's word, certainly if you're using one of the pew Bibles. I I know it's capitalized there. And this is the covenant name of God And it is Yahweh. Theologians historically have called this a fancy word called the tetragrammaton. It's simply a term that refers to God's name being represented by only four letters. Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. As is typical in English, is also typical in Hebrew and other languages, that there are vowels between the consonants. But when we read this tetragrammaton, this name Yahweh, historically in the nation of Israel, because of the the magnificence of God's covenant name, the vowels are removed. In fact, you might find it interesting that we have Jewish friends and neighbors right around here where where we live, and I'm even on some committees with them around town, and, and if ever they use even the word God, they do not pronounce it all. They leave out the vowel. If you see it written somewhere, you'll see G hyphen D. It is a way of exalting the name of God that he is so great. He is so majestic. He is so in control that his name is unlike any other. You ought to think carefully before you even say it. This name Yahweh appears first in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. If you know your Bible well, especially in Genesis, you'll remember this is the the, the point of creation. This is when the, the covenant God is creating all that there is, and he refers to himself as Lord. This name is then revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God says to Moses, and this is basically the translation or meaning of that covenant name, I am who I am. 
He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, because I'm sending you to them as my ambassador and representative, my mouthpiece, that I am has sent you. It is the high and exalted covenant name of God. It's the God who, who is. It, it gives you that sense as though he is so great, we, just, we almost can't put words on it. The only thing you can really say is he is. He always is. He always has been. He always will be. This is the covenant God of the Bible. This is the covenant God of the world. And there is none like him. This God is the God whose voice roars. We read in verse 2 that the Lord, Yahweh, roars from Zion. And from Jerusalem, he utters his voice. Here you see that Yahweh utters his voice from a specific place, as it's represented here, from Jerusalem, the place representing his ultimate authority. The center, in a way, the center of the world. He roars from Zion, where he chose to set his altar. That is the place in the Hebrew Bible of his wrath and his mercy. Yahweh roars. His voice roars. You see, God chooses his words wisely and with intentionality to make things clear to us. He wants you to get a hold of this. He's not just saying some ordinary, everyday thing. He's saying something arresting. As you hear a text like this preached to you, or perhaps even if you read it in your personal devotional time, if you're like me, sometimes you just read over things. You can know that if you're ever reading the Bible and you just read over things, something's going wrong. It's a time to stop, come before God, ask him for help. Your creatureliness is showing. My fallenness is showing. Because God does not play with words. He doesn't waste words like pennies in a fountain. He just doesn't cast them out. He says here that he roars. When you think about roaring in our world, of course, you probably think like I do about National Geographic. You know, the lion has the loudest roar of all the big cats. It's so loud at 114 decibels that it can be heard at a distance of, of around one meter and can be heard as far away or, or as far away as five miles. And this volume of the lion's roar is because of the way that the lion's voice box is shaped. It's not triangular like many of the other creatures that God has made, but it's rectangular and long. And therefore, when his, his breath passes over, it goes out with incredible, incredible volume. It roars, and everyone hears it. It means that lions can roar louder, but even then they're doing it with less effort. If any other animal tried to roar like this, they couldn't. Even if they could, it would take them inc an incredible amount of effort. They're simply not made to do that. 
Only the God of the universe, only the God of the universe can roar like this. Well, what should the world do when they hear the God of the universe, Yahweh? The one who is known by consonants and not vowels. What are they to do when they hear his roar? I assure you it's much louder than 114 decibels. It can be heard much farther than just five miles. It can be heard around the world. It can be heard throughout the universe. What is the proper response? You see it here. What does the world do when God roars? He said, the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn. Catch the image. Amos, as you heard last week, is a, a kind of shepherd. And this shepherd is saying that, that God, the lion, roars. And all of the sheep in the field fall to the ground in mourning, in weeping, in despair, in desperation, in sadness, in grieving, in fear and trembling. It's dark. It's ominous. It's as if you were on the beach and you have seen tragic footage of this on the news or on the internet. It's as if you're on the beach when a giant tsunami created by a distant earthquake is now raging onto the beach. You hear it. If you watch those videos or if you hear from those who have survived it and they explain what it was like, they say that it's the wave of water, which is hard to imagine, so great that it is roaring. It's like hearing a, a roaring jet or an approaching freight train. And when you hear it, you know there's no escape. And therefore, the pasture grounds mourn. Notice where the roar of God's judgment goes. What does it cover? Well, it covers everything. Notice how Amos puts it this way. The pasture grounds, the valleys mourn, and the summit of Carmel, the mountaintop, dries up. This is a reference to the top of Mount Carmel where there is vegetation. There's lush vegetation everywhere, making it an incredible place to be, an incredible place of resources. But when the tsunami of God's roar of wrath and judgment comes, even the mountaintop, even the mountaintop is dried up. Now we know from God's word that God is a lion and he roars. And his roar is perhaps in the Bible most clearly heard, most profoundly heard, most terrifyingly heard in the anticipation of coming judgment on the ultimate day of judgment when all those who refuse to bow before this king, this lion, that they will be cast into a place called hell. I don't know anything more sobering. I don't know anything more mournful than to think of souls like ours being cast into hell. Cast into hell where God is. Now, that's a misconception in our world today that 
God is not in hell, he most certainly is in hell. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere that he is not. But if you were to go to hell, you would find that he, he very much is there. And he is there roaring. He is there in wrath. You know, it's for this reason that I have, I have heard the caution and, and heeded it. And I give you the caution that you would heed it. That we just don't, as Christians, we don't joke about hell. Sometimes you've, you've done that. Sometimes I've done that. Somebody makes a, a, real, a real clumsy mistake or they, 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 they really insult someone. They're kind of telling you about it. They, they do something surprisingly bad and uncharacteristic. We say something like, oh, boy, you're really going to hell for that. We, we, don't, we don't joke about hell. Sometimes in the heat of summer, you go out in the middle of the day. Maybe we felt that a little bit yesterday. And we start to make a reference. We start to draw a line between our imagination of hell and how hot it is here. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't do that. Because hell is the place of the covenant God and his roaring wrath. The Bible does not shy away from this topic. The Bible does not try to hide any of this. This is, this is part of the whole counsel of God. In fact, I believe that it's a, a big part of the whole counsel of God that we're even told to make sure that we're proclaiming. Listen again to those words that you heard this morning in the public reading of Scripture text in Revelation 6. It says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Have you ever heard anything so incredible? Have you ever had a picture painted for you with words so alarming that all the people of the world would hide in caves and they would stand at the feet of mountains and they would beg the mountains in insanity that they would fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. How grateful are you for Christ? Because that will not be you if you know him. But what this means, I think, as we try to apply this text, as we always do to our lives, is first that we ought to make sure that we're cultivating an appropriate response to the words of Scripture. I wonder when I read texts like this, how much they stick to me. How much I, I hear the way that I should be responding, and yet I, I don't always find that in me. 
that reminds me that I need to cultivate this. I need to cultivate a proper response to the word of God. When I read about the roar of the Lord from Zion, what does it do to my heart? What does it do to your heart? It should, at least in some sense, make you mourn. See yourself there. You, you are there without Christ. Mourn. We look next, though, as we look at verse 3, at the first of five statements that may be common to you. You hear them in church. You, of course, hear them in the Word of God. And you, you'll hear five of them in just this chapter as we work forward over the coming weeks. And it is the phrase, thus says the Lord. There's this real emphasis throughout the Old Testament, and in particular in Amos, of this emphasis on the Lord's voice, of what he is saying as the covenant God. You've heard that his voice is roaring. It is uttering this truth that dries up mountains and causes the pasture grounds to mourn. You hear it repeated again. It's happening over and over again. It's a kind of barrage of one truth to drive home a point and to get the proper response from us. And here it is next. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. And we might call this the, the Damascus Oracle. It's talking about this place of Damascus. What we're seeing here in the text as it moves forward is, is the, the, the emphasis or the attention or focus is, is going to the areas around the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. Amos is, is, is declaring certain things about, about other people and other groups around, and you're getting this comprehensive sense of God's roaring voice of judgment and his seriousness about sin throughout all the world. And even here, you're seeing just striking language again and again. Listen to this, I will not revoke. That is, that is a statement of promise. It, it's a promise of a guarantee of punishment for sin. Incredibly serious. Here, you see in verse 3 that Amos' message declares judgment of the nations surrounding Israel. And again, this will happen five times just in this chapter and then continue even after that. But you look at this and you say, wow, what sin is this? What is, what is God so serious about in this case that he will not revoke their punishment? Well, a device is used here to show this seriousness of sin first. It, it's, it's, a, it's a graduated numbering. Do you see that? You've probably read that other places when it talks about God's uh, hatred of sin and what God considers to be an abomination before him. This graded numbering, it's where, it's where the number kind of jumps up a notch. It's a way of, of being kind of all-encompassing. Look here, you see in verse 3, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four symbolically what it represents is first fullness in three and then the overflow of sin in four. It's talking about a, a kind of set of spiritual crimes. As though three were not enough, let me just make sure that you understand it's overflowing is what Amos is saying. God is making a statement, a serious statement about the transgressions of his law the seriousness of their sin. It cannot be numbered with one number. It can't even be numbered with the number of fullness. It's even worse than that. 
Well, what was their sin? Notice here, he tells us, because they threshed Gilead. It seems that their sin was cruel treatment of a group of people called the Gileadites. And even in some historic fragments, there are records of, of when these people who are the recipients of God's judgment in, in these verses actually had pregnant women of Gilead as the recipients of their cruel and inhumane treatment. The image of threshing, you read that in verse 3, because they threshed Gilead. It refers, of course, to a process of separating seed from the stalk at harvest time when, when grain is processed. And even in some cases, sledges pulled behind animals would be outfitted with iron spikes. Those iron spikes would be driven through so that as they were dragged through, it would do this incredible threshing work. You're getting a picture here of incredible cruelty to the people around them. It's a display of of, of horrific cruelty. But even here, there is a surprising comfort, isn't there? You're seeing how serious God takes the deeds of people in his world, the way that they live their lives, the way that they treat one another. And here's this comfort that we, we want to draw out of, out of every book of the Bible, everywhere that we can, and it is by understanding how God looks at sin. He takes sin so seriously. If you see cruel treatment happening anywhere in the world at any time, you can be assured that God hates it. Anywhere or any time that you hear about or you see helpless people being oppressed and taken advantage of, you can be sure that God hates it. And he's telling you right here, how much? That's a comfort to us because, because that helps us understand who is the God of the world? Who is the God that we serve? How will he take care of us? How will he ensure that justice is done throughout the world? He certainly will. He hates oppression. He hates persecution. And he will, in his own words here, not revoke. That, that means to turn his back. That means to, to relent. He will not revoke the punishment promised by his voice. You notice even how serious this becomes with Amos and the vision that he's receiving to make it very clear with the wording. Because notice that there's a change. There's a change from verse 2 from the third person to the first person. I will not revoke. It doesn't simply say the Lord will not revoke as though we're talking about him. It's actually his words, right? Right? It's driving home this truth that God is the powerful agent of judgment. Well, that brings a question to our minds, doesn't it? Because we should always be looking in the law of God back at ourselves. We should always be looking in the face of God, the character of God as Christians, because we, we want to be like him. We've been enabled to be like him because of his grace in our lives. What do you do? when someone feels that they're being cruelly mistreated or they're suffering under a great hardship, what do you do? How do you feel about that? What do you say about that? What do I say about that? Where do you point them? 
And I have to say, I'm not on social media very much. I've kind of limited, taken way down uh, people that I follow, most of the people in our church. But every now and then, you know, that algorithm, that algorithm just loves to try to figure out the kinds of things that I like. The other day, I'm not sure why, I decided to pop up for me a fairly prominent pastor giving to a fairly large congregation what he believed was good news. He was speaking to people in the sense that they were, they were struggling, they were suffering, they were having a hard time, they were feeling the heat of this fallen world. And the good news that he wanted to give to them was this. You're stronger than you think you are. That's what he said. Hmm. You know, when I hear that, there's part of me that just lets that go. You're stronger than you think you are. Well, that's not really good news at all, is it? That's not the good news of the Bible. That's not what Jesus tells people who are suffering and struggling. He doesn't say, oh, you can do it. You're stronger than you think you are. Because what is that to do? That's simply to take them and to point them where? To point them back at themselves. Is that what we do? When we find somebody struggling or suffering or, or reporting that they, they're being persecuted or they're being oppressed or they're being unjustly treated, is that what we say? Oh, come on. You're stronger than you think you are. I hope not. Because that is not good news. What is the good news? The good news always in Christ is exactly the opposite. For those who long for relief and rescue and hope in the midst of hardship, the answer to them is God is stronger than you think he is. You can trust him. You can turn to him. You can walk with him. When we come across people and this happens all of the time, especially right now in our country, in our communities. There are all kinds of people who are feeling unsettled. They feel mistreated. They feel oppressed by various forces in the world. The first mistake we can make is by telling them, come on, really? And debate them about whether that's actually happening. And the second mistake we can make is by telling them, come on. You're stronger than you think you are. Rather, instead, what should we do? We want to direct people to Christ, who is full of mercy. He's full of mercy, even in moments like these, that they might turn to him. But you just can't turn to the God of mercy unless you know that he's not only full of mercy, but he is full of wrath. How can he be full of both at the same time? I just don't know. No matter what someone is experiencing in our world, no matter whether it is real or perceived, Jesus has something to say to that person. And what a delight we have to be ambassadors for him, that we would speak to them, and that we would point them to him. And we do this with incredible humility, I hope. We should never arrogance about our place in God's kingdom, because we know the seriousness of God's wrath. We know that that it was all because of grace that we have escaped. And we know here this final truth. We've seen already that the roar of God makes mourning. We saw second that the message of God, when he speaks it, it ensures punishment. But we see third, that the punishing fire of which God speaks, what you're hearing declared in these passages, is the punishing fire 
of a God who consumes, who will consume in the end not only sin, but even sinners. It's enough to make us put our hands on our mouths. Look at verse 4. He says, So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. When speaking of God's coming judgment in the book of Hebrews, which it wasn't that long ago that we spent a significant amount of time, remember, as we worked verse by verse, that incredible book of Hebrews, seeing how Jesus is better than, than everyone else, you heard these words. You heard them in a little different order, but it's the exact same message, Old Testament to, to New Testament. And what was it? And it is that our God, our God is a consuming fire. These are not playful words. They're not playing around with vocabulary. These are intentional words, a consuming fire. That's why he says in verse 4, I will send fire upon the house, and it will consume. Whoa, a consuming fire. You know, throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, fire was often a tool of war. It was also a type of covenant curse. It's a way of expressing or showing or talking about or anticipating divine wrath, the very worst thing in the universe. And here it is, all those things. It has all of those qualities to it in verse 4 and 5. It's signifying here what we might call a holy war. This is the picture of God making war in his world. When he says, I will send fire, I will consume. We have some uh, different pieces here that are kind of hard for us to, to know a lot about. You know, who are the targets of this holy fire? You, you hear this about someone named Hazael. Hazael in the Bible uh, became king of Aram, but he did so by murder, by, by murdering the, the reigning king, Ben-Hadad, and the dynasty he founded then became known as the house of Hazael. But notice the way it's talking about this house and citadel. See, these words are important. Both houses and fortified towns are pictured here, and both of them are no match for the wrath of God. They're no match for the consuming fire of God. There simply is no escape. There's nothing that you could build. There's no wall high enough or fireproof enough. There's nothing that you could do. Even in verse 5, he goes on and he continues the, the kind of flood of, of wrathful language. He says, I will also break the gate bar at Damascus. Talking about this, these people and, and how they have acted cruelly against others and his wrath coming against them. He says, I'll break the gate bar. This is just the bar that, that would close off the gate of the city so that no one could come in. It's a way of saying, I'm going to leave you completely exposed to the warring people of the world, and they will be enveloped into my wrathful judgment against you. It's, it's that ongoing picture of war. He would then bear down his wrath on three other leaders, which you read about in verse 5, in three other locations surrounding Israel. We just don't know very much about them, but you catch the striking language. It's enough to get the picture. 
when you read words like in verse 5, break, I will cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden so that the people of Aram will go exiled to Kir, says the Lord. All of this is being contained in this image of fire coming. How do we sometimes talk about fire? I think about that as I work through passages like this. I I try to think about what kind of things do we say? When do we talk about fire? Sometimes we say things like, um, he got his walking papers. That's kind of an old way to put it. He got his walking ticket. In Britain, they say that somebody gets sacked when they lose their job. To get sacked, to get the bounce, to get the boot, to get laid off, to be shopped, to get the blue envelope, get the pink slip, get the skids, hit the bricks, get the kiss off, hit the asphalt, pound the pavement. Since the 1850s, all of these have been ways to talk about someone's need to look for another job. But I don't know that any of them captures it so strikingly than you know what. You are fired. You ever thought about that? I don't know exactly where that comes from. I've heard a couple different stories. One is that perhaps in medieval times, uh, the age of history, not the restaurant, in medieval times that if you were to, to be excommunicated from the village, they would kick you out and they would burn your house down so you had nowhere to come back to. At other times, it may have been used to, to signify the idea that you'd take this erring employee and you would fire him or her out into the sky, way far away from your business. Either way, either way, there, there is almost just no comparison to what God is talking about here. Fire and exile. But again, in Christ, our hearts rejoice because we do not fear the searing wrath of God's fire. As we continue to walk with him, we continue to be kept by his grace. Christ has not made your salvation possible. He has secured it. He's taken you. And yet these passages do remind us of the God who has saved us and the God from whom we have been saved. That ought to be really humbling. That would be really motivating to us as evangelists, as lovers of other people, as worshipers of our God. He is full of both wrath and mercy, judgment and grace. And we are given the reminder that is sobering that he is the one who has saved us. And yet he is the one who will execute judgment on his world. That is what the Lord says. When I think about that, uh, those, those, those two truths at work together, I, I almost always go back to that line. I think you've probably heard it before. We've probably mentioned it before on Sunday mornings from the Chronicles of Narnia when they're talking about Aslan the lion. Remember this? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. As, as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are explaining to them, who it is that roars throughout Narnia, who it is who actually has control, though everything looks as though it's falling apart. 
And you remember what Susan said. She says, oh, I thought he was a, a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as you should be. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. Do you have any doubt right now if you've paid attention to these verses? Do you have any doubt that God is not safe? He is not safe. But just as C.S. Lewis so aptly put it, but he is good. He is the king. And there's nothing better than knowing the king. What should we do with a God like this? This is where we bring our time this morning to a close it's very important that everyone here hear this again and again. What should you do with a God like this? Turn. Turn to him. Bow before him. Come into him just as he's offered you to. By grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, not by trusting anything that you have, but to come into him knowing that he is gracious and that he has given Christ to take this wrath, to take this fire, to bear his roar on your behalf. He has given Christ alone as the ultimate solution for our sin. We want to take that away this morning. I hope that you will take that away this morning. I hope that you'll take away this picture of where you could be, where apart from Christ you and I deserve to be. But then to see through all that God has declared to us in his word where we actually are. Shielded, cared for, loved, held, kept for the ultimate day of redemption. We're grateful for that this morning. May it make us loud, make us roar as loud as our little triangular voice boxes can to roar for the Lord to everyone that we can of his greatness. Our Father in heaven, we, we ask you for your, your help. Our eyes are so dim, our ears are so hard of hearing, our minds are so dull, our hearts remain somewhat dark, and we need your help. So we pray that as we have heard these words from your word, that they would captivate our hearts, that the seeds of truth that we have planted this morning would, would not be planted in vain, but they would sprout up and our satisfaction, our joy, our gladness in you, our, our seriousness about sin in the world, our love for other people, and our desire to point them to you, our fear of hell, that all of that would work for our goods, so that we could love you and we could please you, we could know you and walk with you more and more every day as a church. Use us. We want to be instruments in your redeeming hand. We know that these heavy, hard truths are used by you to, to make us just that. And so we pray that you would do it and that you would carry us forward this week together as we serve you and love you and worship you and make you known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.